It is wonderful to be here with you this morning on the first Sunday of a new year. I don't know how it is right now, but when I drove in, it was mighty dreary, and I felt like saying, come on, 2021. This isn't 2020 anymore. Was anybody besides me happy to say goodbye to 2020? I was, yes. <laughs> that was the same reaction we got at 9 o'clock. Well, I'm glad you're here today, and those of you who are joining us online, we're very glad that you have chosen to spend part of your very first Sunday of 2021 with us. Welcome. God loves being worshipped wherever you might be. You know, as we head into a new year, we know that it's a year that will continue to be filled with some pitfalls, but also some great possibilities. We make our resolutions. If you're like me, uh, maybe you've already made them and broken them. I resolved on New Year's Day that I was going to lose two pounds a month till I lost 20 pounds and I was going to exercise. And then yesterday, that second piece of key lime pie called to me and I said, eh, I'll wait and walk tomorrow after church. And that pie looks mighty good. And the resolution went right out the window. So this morning, I hope that our time together will give all of us some ideas of things that we can um, be resolved about going into a new year that aren't superficial things, that are things that really, really matter. You know, as I thought of 2020 and embarking on a, a new 2021, I couldn't help but um, kind of make an analogy between the year we've just spent and the tumultuous changes that we all experience in our lives as teenagers. Does anybody remember those years? Um, I remember those years um, with a lot of joy and a lot of laughter now that it's receded in terms of its effect on my parents. But um, I remember just as a young person going through a time when I was detaching a little from my parents. And I was rebelling a little bit. And I was trying to find my way in a world bigger than my family. And it was a lot of transition. And I was becoming influenced by people other than my mom and my dad and my grandparents. And, you know, 2020 was a lot like that. We were looking at a world that had changed dramatically and we were trying to find our way. We found that if we weren't careful, we could be influenced more than was good for us by social media. It was a year when we all became, you know, kind of like teenagers again, trying to find our way. And it brought to mind a favorite TV show that I used to watch during the 1980s. Maybe some of you watched it too. It was called The Wonder Years. Does anybody remember The Wonder Years? I loved that show. Um, I thought the characters were great, but I loved the show because the setting, even though it brought, was broadcast in the 80s, was kids in junior high school, what we used to call middle school back then, in the late 60s and early 70s, exactly when I was in junior high school. The clothes they wore, the battles they had, the struggles they had. Um, there was Kevin, you know, puppy love with Winnie and the older brother who used to kind of bully him a little bit. And the family went through struggles. And it just reminded me so much of my growing up years that I, I just loved the Wonder Years. And while it was a funny show, 
it also had some serious moments. And often at the beginning of the show, there was a quotation or a reflection from the main character, Kevin. And one of the shows, this is what he said at the beginning. When you're a little boy, you don't have to go very far to find the center of the universe. It's mom. She's always there. It's a pretty good arrangement when you're five. But around age 13, there starts to be a problem. She's always there. And I mean always. Now a mom has to be a mom, and a guy's got to be a guy. And when an irresistible force meets an immovable object, sooner or later, something's got to give. Does that ring any bells with anybody? Was that true? But you know, 2020 was like that. We had immovable objects meeting irresistible forces, and something's got to give. I loved the way that show explored relationships between parents and children, between siblings, first loves, life in junior high school, which can be tough love, tough life. But it also makes me wonder, what were those wonder years like for Jesus? At what point in time did Jesus realize that his mom, Mary, was no longer the center of his universe? When we look at scriptures, it doesn't tell us much about Jesus' early years. We have the birth narratives and then we have a little bit of divergence in stories in Matthew and Luke. There's absolutely no mention in either John's gospel or Mark's gospel about Jesus' growing up years. They essentially begin with John the baptism, and very early in those gospels, Jesus is baptized. But if we look at Matthew's gospel, we have a birth narrative. We know that Jesus was born. We know that a little after he was born, a year or two later, three wise men, the Magi, traveled to visit Jesus in his home. Although when we celebrate Christmas, we sometimes have the wise men right there at the stable with Jesus in the manger. That's not really the timing that the scripture teaches us. And as I spoke about last week, we know that after the wise men left Jesus, when he was a toddler, age one or two, that Joseph received a message from an angel of the Lord that told him, take the child and your family and go to Egypt because Herod wants to kill Jesus. And Joseph was obedient. And then just a few verses later, we say, we hear that after Herod died, the family came back from Egypt and moved to Nazareth. And that's the end of what Matthew tells us about Jesus's childhood. We learn a little more from Luke's gospel. In fact, Pastor Bob spoke about it the first Sunday of Advent when he talked about how hope waits. And he described how Simeon and Anna were overjoyed to meet the infant Jesus at the temple in Jerusalem. Presumably, Mary and Joseph had brought Jesus there to comply with Jewish law so Mary could be purified, so Jesus could be circumcised. And both Simeon and Anna were... The were overjoyed, but right after that, we basically have the end of Jesus's infancy when um, Luke tells us, when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. 
he was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. And then Luke immediately jumps about 10 years ahead and the next few verses describe the family's visit to Jerusalem again when Jesus was 12 years old. And we have not a whisper in any of the Gospels about what happened in between. So let me read you the story of Jesus, the 12-year-old, and what happened in Jerusalem, and see if we can draw some lessons from that story. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. After the celebration was over, they started home to Nazareth, but Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't miss him at first because they assumed he was among the other travelers. When they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to search for him there. They finally discovered him in the temple, sitting among the religious teachers, listening to them and asking questions. Son, his mother said to him, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic, searching for you everywhere. But why did you need to search, he asked. Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? But they didn't understand what he meant. Then he returned to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all the people. Luke and Matthew's narratives are the only information we have about Jesus the child. We know that he was born, was laid in a manger in a lowly place, that there wasn't room for him. We know that the Magi visited him, and shortly thereafter he had to escape to Egypt because his life was threatened. We know that he grew up in Nazareth and that his parents raised him according to Jewish custom and religious belief because he did go to Jerusalem to be circumcised, and the family did go to Jerusalem in order to celebrate the Passover. And then we know somewhere along the way that he must have experienced what it was like to have your father die because we never see or hear from Joseph again. And then, poof, Jesus is a man. That's all the scriptures tell us. We know from the story in the temple that Jesus thought it was important to learn from the teachers, the rabbis in the temple. That leads me to believe that as a boy growing up in Nazareth, he probably went to the local synagogue and like other Jewish boys in the community, was trained by the rabbis in the scriptures. We know this because Jesus quotes scriptures throughout his ministry we can tell from that story that he was beginning to understand his relationship with his father, and yet he still loved and was obedient to his earthly parents. But there's really important verses in the text that I just read you when Jesus replied to Mary. Let me go back over those. Mary said to him, Why have you done this to us? Your father, with a lowercase f, his earthly father, and I have been frantic, searching for you everywhere. But when Jesus replied, he said, but why did you need to search? Didn't you know that I must be in my father with a capital F on father's house? There was a difference 
And Jesus was beginning to understand the difference between his human parents and his heavenly father. He understood it better, perhaps, than his parents understood it. Like teens today, Jesus' parents just didn't understand him. And in that moment, maybe that's when Jesus realized that his mother was no longer the center of his universe. Just as Kevin began to realize that at around the same age in the television show, The Wonder Years. You know, we have to guess a lot about Jesus' upbringing. I've just basically shared with you everything that the Bible tells us 12 minutes into this message. <laughs> That's all we know. But how did he become strong and grow in wisdom and be filled with God's grace? Well, presumably, part of his growing and being strong was he ate real food, just like humans do. He had a human body. But sometimes we're tempted when it comes to his understanding of scriptures to assume that Jesus was born, that we know he was a special infant, but that he was born with his head, his little baby brain, all filled with all those scriptures, and that he just knew them and could spout them off. But you know, if, if that was true, then it would be hard to see Jesus as fully human. It would have been kind of like he cheated. And I, I don't think that's the way it happened. See, there was actually a belief in the first century church world that Jesus' human life only seemed to exist. There was a group of people called docetists who believed that Jesus was only a spiritual being and that even his suffering on the cross only seemed to be suffering and that he really didn't. That, was, that belief was denounced as a heresy. And in fact, it was, it was so rejected by the apostles, as it should have been, that the apostle John wrote about that belief in his first letter that you find near the end of the New Testament. This is what John said in 1 John chapter 4. He said, here's how you test for the genuine spirit of God. Everyone who confesses openly his faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came as an actual flesh and blood person, comes from God and belongs to God. And he warned in that letter that anybody who, who tried to teach that Jesus was only a spiritual being was really a false teacher and that we shouldn't listen to them. Now, it's not my aim today to be academic and give you a, a seminary-level education about docetism. That would be boring. And while I can see if you fall asleep here in the church, if you're worshiping online, you could just curl up on the sofa and you'd be lost. So I'm not going to continue down that thread, but there was a reason why I shared that with you. And it's because just a little while ago, toward the end of December, when I was thinking about this message and all the things Jesus knew and wondering what his teenage years was like, I was having a conversation with a very faithful friend, and I asked her, I said, how do you think Jesus learned all those scriptures How'd... and she said well you know God and and what she meant was well God just you know imprinted them all in his brain and he was just born and as a toddler instead of going goo goo or gaga you know he could just spout scriptures and I'm exaggerating I don't think she really believed that but you see it's important for us not to think 
that Jesus didn't live a life like a human being. I don't mean with the sinful aspects of life that we humans seem to avoid. I mean, he seemed to be unable to avoid. But, but Jesus experienced the struggles that we experience. And it's important for us to recognize that. Otherwise, it's kind of like saying the whole gospel story of Jesus Dying for our sins was based on a lie. If he didn't suffer on the cross, then that how, how did that atone for our sin? So if we buy into the theory, and it is a basis of our faith, so we should, that Jesus was fully human and fully divine, then we ought to think about how did Jesus, growing through his childhood and adolescence, come to be such a good man along with being God? I think this is important because the the scriptures do teach us that Jesus lived as a refugee child in a foreign land. God didn't just wave a magic wand and say, well, I won't let Herod find Jesus. He warned Joseph to escape and Joseph obeyed. We know that two dear friends and disciples of Jesus who, who followed him and learned from him betrayed him and denied him. Men that he loved. He didn't have to go through that denial and betrayal if he was just willing to wave a magic wand. And his anguished words from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That would have been a farce if his suffering wasn't real. And I don't think there's a person in this room or who's watching who believe that's the case. So let's not assume that Jesus did things the easy way. And let's draw some lessons instead from how he lived his life. Even the, the parts of the lives where we have to, his life where we have to use our imagination to fill in the blanks. And to do that, I'd like to reflect with you this morning for a while on a prayer that we often say this time of the year. It's called the Wesley Covenant Prayer, and it's really important to United Methodists. Before I pray it with you, I'd like to go through some of the lines of this prayer and offer a few observations. The prayer begins, I am no longer my own, but yours. Jesus behaved that way, and there was a point in time where He implied in the words to his parents, I am no longer yours, but I belong to my father. In other words, Jesus lived a life where he demonstrated that his life was not his own, but it belonged to God his father to do with what God would. The prayer goes on to say, put me to what you will, place me with whom you will. Who was he placed with? The lepers, the blind men the adulteress, the tax collectors, the sinners, the outcasts. And he accepted that. He didn't migrate to the powerful or the wealthy. He didn't migrate to the haves. He migrated to the have-nots. It says, put me to doing, put me to suffering. He suffered on the cross for you and for me. Jesus lived this covenant prayer 1,800 years before John Wesley wrote it. 
Let me be put to work for you or set aside for you, praised for you or criticized for you. We know that Jesus took lots of criticism, not only from the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but at one point in time, his mother and his brothers went to fetch him from where he was in his early ministry because they, they thought he was crazy with the claims he was making. He was in, even criticized by his brothers. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. We know that part of Jesus' training of his disciples was to tell them, you know, be careful what you ask for. I've chosen the hard road. I don't even have a place to lay my head. He didn't have material things. And then I freely and fully surrender all things to your glory and service. Was there ever a more poignant surrender to God than Jesus' prayer on the night he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane before the soldiers came? When he said, God, this suffering I have to endure. Do I have to do this? Can you take this cup from me? But if not, thy will, not my will, be done. Thy will be done exemplifies Jesus' life. So I invite you now, if you're here in the sanctuary space or if you're watching online, to bow your heads and close your eyes and listen as I pray this prayer from beginning to end and try to um, cooperate with God as God places this prayer in your heart. Try to hear the words and to embrace them as your own. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Place me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be put to work for you or set aside for you. Praised for you or criticized for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and fully surrender all things to your glory and service. And now, O wonderful and holy God, creator, redeemer, and sustainer, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it also be made in heaven. Amen. So why am I talking about this covenant prayer on the first Sunday of a new year? Because this covenant prayer could be the basis for a New Year's resolution that would really be a resolution for the rest of our lives. You know, normally, we don't have the Advent wreath still out here with all the candles lit. If you were here last week or watching online, you may have noticed that only the Christ candle was lit last week, the symbolism being that the Christ candle was before all and above all, and everything else was extinguished. But I asked Laurel to leave this out here this Sunday and to have all the candles lit for us because I want you to think of this arrangement of candles a little bit differently than hope, love, peace, and joy, although those are wonderful things and part of a life of faith. Instead, I'd like you to think of this candle that stands above the rest as Jesus in our lives and as these other candles as us. Human beings who try to follow Christ's example and become little Jesuses. Maybe this is the mom and the dad or a grandparent. 
Maybe this is the children, Kevin, or maybe it's Noah and Josh back there. Let us use this arrangement of candles as a symbol, a symbol for how we will live our lives and resolve to move into the future. If you want to lose weight and exercise more, that's great. Because the scripture does tell us the body is a temple for the spirit. So it's good to take care of the body. But I invite you this morning to join me in a New Year's resolution that I began this morning. I'm two days late because I wanted to share it with you. I wanted to make the resolution here this morning in your presence. And that resolution for me is that I am going to pray this covenant prayer every single morning of 2021 in hopes that it will take its proper place in my heart and that God working within me will help me to overcome all the dumb stuff I do that isn't like Jesus. That seems like a resolution worth making. You know, we don't know much about Jesus' wonder years, but I do know this. Jesus knew the scripture, and I think it's because he studied. So why don't we resolve to study scripture? Jesus knew God was his father, and he began to understand that relationship at least by the age of 12 because he prayed. So let's make a resolution to pray. Jesus knew about the basis of his faith because his parents and his grandparents taught him. So if we are a parent or a grandparent or adult who has an opportunity to influence a child, let's influence them by teaching them about their faith. And if we are a youngster or a teen listening or sitting here today listening, let's resolve to listen to what we're taught. Jesus put others and God ahead of himself. Let's resolve to do that too. That's the part that he taught us called loving our neighbors. Let's make 2021 a wonder year for us. Let's cause our community to wonder about what it is those crazy Christians have that I don't have. So they want some of it too. Can we do that together? I hope we can. 2021, a new time, a time of transition, a time of incredible learning and change, a time that could be filled with wonder for us, for our children, and for our community.